Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 7, we read, They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Today is Palm Sunday, the day that we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, began the last week of his life, the Passion Week, where he celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples, and on Good Friday he was crucified and buried, and then on Easter Sunday he arose from the grave. But as he rode into town on Palm Sunday, the people asked, Who is this? And it's an important question for us to answer as we look at Jesus and we ask, who is this? Or, or what did he come to accomplish? Or why did he come to earth? There is a, a fallacy called the Christological fallacy. And the fallacy says this, that Jesus came primarily to impart knowledge by his life or by his example and his words his, or his teaching. So in other words, the reason Jesus came was just to be a good moral example and to offer us some great lessons for life and to offer us a good teaching. But the Christological fallacy is just that. It is wrong. Jesus did not come primarily to be a great example or to offer his teaching. Revelation was not Christ's primary work. Redemption was. Jesus came as a remedy for sin. He didn't come as a remedy for ignorance. He didn't come because we didn't know things. He came to offer his life as a sacrifice for us. If you think about it in medical terms, what he provided for us was surgery, not just eyeglasses to fix our sight. What he did was he came to offer his life as redemption for our sins. And so this is the reason Jesus came. He came to offer his life for us. He came to die. Death and suffering are not meaningless, but they are redeemed because of Jesus. We find ourselves in a very crazy time, and we find ourselves in a, a world that each day we get new news, and we get um, all kinds of uh, upsetting news and perhaps anxiety and worry. And we can often despair, like the writer of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. And perhaps you have found yourselves over the last few days or the last couple of weeks, just in those moments of despair, those moments of, of um, thinking where we just think it's all futile, it's just meaningless, it's hopeless. But then we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we've been uh, last week and now this week, and we'll finish next week on Easter. As Paul was finishing up the book of Corinthians, he leaves the Corinthians with the foundational truth of Christianity about the resurrection of Jesus. And this resurrection of Jesus provides us with hope. That as Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and then on Good Friday, he was crucified and he was buried. There was a lot of despair and pain and anguish in the life of his disciples and in his followers. But there's always hope. There's always a season of renewal. There's always a time of resurrection. As we come through the winter months and the ground is barren and 
hard oftentimes frozen over and there's no life and then the spring those first few plants start to push up through the soil and we see the flowers and we see the blossoms on the trees it's always a time of renewal and a time of hope and so even though we may find ourselves in a winter-like time in life right now there's always the hope of a spring of renewal and that's what paul is offering to us in first first corinthians chapter 15. So starting in verse 15, or starting in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing to correct the Corinthians' misunderstanding of the resurrection. He says in verse 12, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So right away, Paul sets up a contrast, and he says, It is preached that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead, But some of you are saying there is no resurrection from the dead. And so Paul begins this section in Corinthians that he has this this, uh, disbelief and the Corinthians disbelief that there was no resurrection. And so it's the erroneous conclusion of these saints, whether they recognize it or not, that if they believe there is no resurrection, then even Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And so he says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. So Paul starts out by addressing the error of why he's writing to the Corinthians. And he wanted these saints to understand that if they say there is no resurrection, then the Jesus who Paul preached had risen from the dead, he hasn't risen either. Let's look at verses 14 to 18. Paul goes on, he, he um, lists this argument, and he says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And so Paul begins his argument and he says, if you do not believe in the resurrection of the dead, then Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead either. What they were not believing in was a bodily resurrection for them, for the believers in Jesus. And so they are saying, there is no resurrection. There is no hope. And Paul says, if you really believe that, then even Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. Paul lists four things that are useless or meaningless or futile without the resurrection of Jesus. The first thing he says is that our teaching is not true. We are false witnesses about God. Paul says, I am going around telling people that Jesus has been raised from the dead. But if you are saying there's no resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. And so I'm pretty much a liar. I'm telling you something that's not true. And so he says, if there is no resurrection, then the proclamation that me and the other apostles and the People from the early church on is a lie. And so Paul says, your message, the message that I have given you is 
not true. But more importantly, Paul says this, another thing that is useless or meaningless is your faith. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Your faith rests on the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead. And if he hasn't been raised from the dead, your faith is useless. You're believing in something or your faith rests on something that didn't happen. So not only we are false teachers, but your faith is false as well. And Paul goes on, he says, so if this is true, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and futile has that word connotation of meaningless. You were just doing something that has no benefit or there's no fruit to it. And in verse 17, he says, and you are still in your sins. So forgiveness then also is useless without the resurrection of Jesus. The forgiveness that was brought after Jesus hung on the cross, he was buried, and then he rose again from the dead to show who he truly was. You have no forgiveness of sins either. And then Paul gets very personal. In verse 18, he says, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. He says, Those that you know who have put their faith in Jesus, who had their sins forgiven because of Jesus' work that he came to accomplish, the redemption that he purchased for us, those who have already died basing their lives on the faith in Jesus, they are lost. He says in verse 18, they've fallen asleep. And if they've fallen asleep in Christ, and if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then they are lost. And so Paul was trying to shock the Corinthians into the reality that if what you, the, the ramifications of what you are saying are true, then this whole thing of faith and belief in Jesus is false. But the good news for us is that's the reason Paul was writing. Thankfully, the Corinthian position is not accurate. Paul is saying if you deny any fact of the resurrection or to discount the resurrection. It's like trying to sew a fabric without, without a knot in the thread. It just keeps pulling loose. It keeps pulling loose. You put the needle through the thread and there's no knot and you pull on it and the string just comes out. It is useless and it is futile. And so Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he wants to write to us and say there is hope because the resurrection truly had happened. Earlier in chapter 15, Paul says there's 500 witnesses who have seen this resurrection. So he's already built the case on the historical fact of the resurrection. But we need the hope that Paul is giving us in the resurrection today, maybe more than we did last Easter season. Today in a world that is so uncertain and there's so much hard news and hard things happening in people's lives. And so would you just let this season of perhaps anxiety and suffering and uncertainty in this present moment, the future resurrection gives us hope for today. And there are 
three things or three ways that this future, this future resurrection gives us hope for today. First of all, it gives us hope for the life to come. It gives us hope for the life to come. That's what Paul is talking about. In verse 19, he says this, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul is saying that we are to be pitied more than all men because without the future resurrection of the dead, all the negative things that he just listed in verses 13 to 18 would be true. That means Christ was not raised, the preaching is useless, our faith is void, there's no forgiveness of sins, and the dead are lost forever. But Paul makes it clear in this verse that this earthly life is not the ultimate good. That we have the hope for a future resurrection. We have the hope for something grand and magnificent that's going to happen in the future. Because in fact, the dead are raised. Jesus has been raised. And so Paul kept his central theological hopes focused upon a future that is created new by God. He was encouraging the Corinthians and he encourages us to not to place our hope on temporal things in this life. It's where Jesus calls us to place our focus. In Mark chapter 10, verses 29 to 30, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. Jesus is saying something happens when we, we give up this earthly life for the kingdom. We also gain all kinds of things in the kingdom because there are other believers. And so we can perhaps not have a great family growing up, but when we become part of the family of God, we're given this new family that we're blessed with, the people who are striving to be like Jesus. And so Jesus says, this is what happens when you join the kingdom. But he also says, along with persecutions, because when you try to do the right thing for him, there are things that will happen and people will not always think that you are wise in following Jesus. And there are some hardships that come with that. But then at the very end of this verse, he says, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus says, you'll gain all of these things. Oh, and by the way, there will be persecutions. There will be some difficulties, but that doesn't stop there. In other words, there is the age to come, eternal life. During the 30 years war, in the 17th century, German pastor Paul Gerhardt and his family were forced to flee from their home. One night as they stayed in a small village inn, homeless and afraid, his wife broke down and cried openly in despair. To comfort her, Gerhardt reminded her of scripture promises about God's provision and keeping, and then going out to the guard to be alone, he too broke down and wept. He felt he had come to his darkest hour. Soon afterward, Gerhardt felt the burden lifted and sensed anew the Lord's presence. Taking his pen, he wrote a hymn that has brought comfort to many. And here's what he wrote. Give to the winds thy fears, hope and be undismayed. God hears thy sighs and counts thy tears. God shall lift up thy head. 
Through waves and clouds and storms, he gently clears the way. Wait thou his time, so shall the night soon end in joyous day. Paul's reminding us that this nighttime that we are in, this life that we live on planet Earth that can be very difficult at times, it will end in joyous day. What is joyous day? Joyous day is resurrection. And so the future resurrection of the dead, that central tenet of our Christian faith, that as we belong to Christ, there will be a day of renewal. There'll be a day of resurrection. That day isn't now. Today is that day of darkness and gloom and despair, but resurrection is future. And so the future hope of the resurrection of the dead gives me meaning today. And it gives me meaning because there is a life to come. And it's almost as if Paul is saying, it's not only for this life we have hope in Christ, it's for eternal life that we have hope in Christ. It's for the next life that we have hope in Christ. And so we don't need to be pitied. Tough things will happen here, but the future resurrection gives us hope for the life to come. The next thing Paul reminds us is the resurrection gives us hope for death. Starting in verse 20, he writes, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. You see Paul's shift in thinking? He says, Corinthians, you're saying that there is no resurrection of the dead, but Christ indeed has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Paul begins by the encouraging news that Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. And then in verse 20, he says, because Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits will also be raised from the dead. Those believers who have died that he mentioned in verse 18 now have the hope of being raised as well. So what Paul does is he argues two basic points. First, Jesus' resurrection is not a paradigm for the future resurrection, but it's actually the beginning of the future resurrection. In other words, when Jesus was raised from the dead, it inaugurated something that will happen to us in the future, and he inaugurated that when he was raised from the dead. Because people will be raised from the dead because they are part of Christ now. And as we are part of Christ now, we will share in his final victory over the last enemy, death, when he comes. Paul emphasizes the fact that we have this direct and immediate impact of the resurrection on our life now. He uses the agricultural metaphor, first fruits. And so what he says is that Christ is the first fruits. 
Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. How is Christ the first fruit? It's because he is actually the one who overthrew death. All, everyone else who died and was seemingly resurrected died again. Think of Lazarus in the New Testament. Jesus went to Lazarus and raised him from the dead, but Lazarus died again. And so really it wasn't a resurrection as much as a resuscitation. Lazarus came forth, but he eventually died again. So Christ is the first fruits that he overthrew the uh, bounds of death, and he was the first fruits for dead believers. This means Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. All others who came before after Jesus were raised from the dead again, but their resurrection didn't eliminate death itself. And so there's no question for believers of whether this will happen, but only when death will permanently be destroyed and our own bodies will be raised. Paul reminds us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus destroyed the power of sin in our lives as he sacrificed himself for us. And Jesus was raised from the dead and he set this into motion now as we look forward to our resurrection. But the last enemy, death, even though the process has been set into motion, hasn't been destroyed yet because we still die. And Paul gives us a little theological lesson of how this is possible. Physical death is traced back to Adam at a time when God told Adam because of his disobedience he would die. He said in Genesis 2.17, you should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it you will surely die. And so because of this corporate personality, the activity of one person that affects the lives of others, the decision of Adam affects all others. And so we die physically because we are part of Adam. We will experience physical death. But Paul reminds us that it's because of Jesus that we all will experience this resurrection. Now, Jesus did say in John chapter 5, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. And so there is a resurrection of all peoples, but those who are in Christ have the hope of eternal life. Those who are not in Christ have this eternal death. And so Jesus will come, and Paul tells us this time has not happened yet. In verse 23, Christ the firstfruits was raised. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. So Jesus returns, and we will be resurrected, and we will experience the end and the restoration of all things. So Paul is reminding us that the last enemy of death has started to be destroyed in the resurrection of Jesus, but this enemy still reigns. We still die. The destruction of death will happen when Jesus returns. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, we read, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And so we are in this time where we look around and we see death and we see hardship and we see heartache. 
And so we live between the time of Jesus' resurrection and the end of time. And so in this in-between time, this last enemy, death, is in the process of being destroyed. The sentence has been handed down, but the execution of that sentence will come at the end of time. And so Paul reminds us that this future resurrection of the dead gives present meaning for us, that we can have hope even in death. As we are in Christ and we die, we have this guarantee of a future resurrection. There's a story about the director of a medical clinic, and he told a terminally ill young man who came in for his usual treatment, there was a new doctor who was on duty, and this new doctor told this young man rather cruelly and casually, you know, don't you, that you won't live out the year? As the young man left, he stopped by the director's desk and he wept. The young man said, that doctor took away my hope. I guess he did, replied the director. Maybe it's time to find a new one. Commenting on this incident, Lewis Smedes writes, Is there a hope when hope is taken away? Is there a hope when the situation is hopeless? That question leads us to Christian hope. For in the Bible, hope is no longer a passion for the possible. It becomes a passion for the promise. What happens when what we hope in is taken away? It seems like the last few weeks, many hopes have been taken away, whether it's the hopes of high school seniors being able to walk across the stage and receive their diploma hopes of the small business owner who are struggling right now, hopes of people who are suddenly finding themselves very ill and knowing loved ones and friends who are passing away. So what happens when what we hope in is taken away? We need to find a new hope. And the hope isn't in what we see, but hope is in the promise. And that's what Paul's reminding us. It's the promise of the resurrection of the dead as we are in Christ. Hope is a gift from God that helps us yearn and live a life that believes and moves with the pledge of a better tomorrow. And what's more, hope springs forth resurrection life and draws us near to the love of Christ, who is the light of God who walked out from the grave to make the way for everlasting life. Paul reminds us, that even though we experience death and this last enemy has yet to be totally destroyed because we are humans, we are in Adam, we die, but hope gives us the pledge of a better tomorrow, which is the third thing that Paul says, this belief in the resurrection of the dead, in our resurrection, that we have this hope in Jesus. What it does is this future resurrection gives me present meaning, and it gives me hope for tomorrow. Verse 29, he says, now, he, if there is no resurrection, he kind of goes back and forth, right? He tells the Corinthians that you are saying there is no resurrection, but indeed there is a resurrection, and Christ did rise from the dead. And now he comes back and he says, now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? This is one of those verses in Scripture. It's very hard sometimes to get a, a hold of. And 
it has baffled interpreters for centuries. He refers to those participating in the practice in the third person. He doesn't say to the Corinthians, why are you baptized for the dead? In other words, the Corinthians were not participating in this practice, but Paul is pulling out something that was happening in their culture. And he says, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? He's not saying the Corinthians were doing this, but there were those who were doing that. The ancient world had many non-Christian religions. Paul had already addressed this through the book of Corinthians as they participated in these idol feasts and meat that was sacrificed to idols and all these um, pagan uh, temples that were numerous in Corinth. And so it seems like Paul is again referring to those practices of the pagans who some pagan had some kind of water immersion or baptism as part of their religious beliefs. And since these water immersion rites were sometimes characteristic of pagan cults, which offered, among other things, host or the hope of a post-mortem existence. In other words, these pagan cultures believed in these baptisms for dead who would somehow live after death. And so all Paul is doing is he's saying, look, these pagans are baptizing for the dead because they believe there's a resurrection. He says, if there isn't any, why are, the, why are even they doing this? Verse 30, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you and Christ Jesus our Lord, if I have fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sitting, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So Paul is not endorsing this practice of baptism for the dead, but he's using it as an argument against those who think there is some validity to it, who at the same time say there is no resurrection of the dead. He's highlighting the inconsistency in their beliefs. And then Paul gets personal in verse 30. He says, if there is no eternal reward, if there is no resurrection, why do I endanger myself every hour? If I look at these dangers and painful experiences of this life, the things that I'm choosing to do for you Corinthians and in service to Jesus. And some of those things bring hardships and danger and, and persecutions. And, and Paul uh, talks about that as he, as he talks about this danger and death. And he says uh, he fought these wild beasts in Ephesus. He's using a, a metaphor of, of uh, fighting uh, these spiritual battles and these conflicts, this opposition that he faced in Ephesus. He says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, why am I doing all this? Why are we doing this if there's no resurrection of the dead? Why are we doing this if there's no hope for tomorrow? Why do we worship and serve and have faith in Jesus? We have a faith that is not futile, but we have a faith that is meaningful because of the resurrection. And so Paul is saying, why am I doing this? It's all just a big lie. It's just a big charade. 
And he says, if there is no resurrection, why not just turn to hedonism and the pursuit of pleasure and focus only on what this life provides? In verse 12, if the dead are not raised, it's if the dead are not raised. If there is no hope of a resurrection, if there is no hope beyond these dark times, beyond death, beyond the illness and the, and the stress that we experience in this life, if there is no hope for something better in the future, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there's no future resurrection, Paul says, just get the most out of life that you can. Why not let life just become one of consumption and fulfilling every desire that you have, whatever those desires are. And he says, if there's no future life, just find all the joys that you can experience in, in, in these earthly appetites. But that's a big if. And it is true. If there is no resurrection, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, we might as well just give in and do everything that satisfies us here today. But Paul says we will not just die tomorrow. We will be raised tomorrow. Not literally tomorrow as in Monday, but tomorrow as in the future. There's that song that we sing. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Paul says a future resurrection gives me hope today because I can live for tomorrow. I don't have to throw everything out and just live for today and get everything and fulfill every desire today because there is a hope for tomorrow. Even in these very dark times when it looks like there is no hope, Paul wants to raise our eyes and have us look forward and say today is not all that there is. You don't have to give up. You can persevere. You can keep going. Hang in there, even through the dark times, because even through the dark times, there will be a resurrection. There will be something new. There will be a renewal. There will be a restoration. And so we don't have to just give in to the despair of the moment. We don't have to just eat and drink and throw everything out and, and, and go crazy today because there is a hope for tomorrow, because we don't die, we will be raised from the dead. And so Paul brings this and he says, come back to your senses. <laughs> he wants to shock us and bring us back. He says, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. What he's saying is in this Corinthian church, there were some who were teaching that there wasn't a resurrection. And he says, you know what they're doing? They're bad company. And because they're saying there's no resurrection and there's no hope, what they're saying is just do whatever you want to do today because this is all there is. This, is, this life is all there is. There's, there's not going to be a restoration. There's not going to be a resurrection. There's not going to be a renewal. So just go hog wild and do everything today. And Paul says, no. He says, come back to your senses and stop sinning. There are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Paul says it matters who you listen to. It matters where you're getting your information. 
And don't listen to those people who tell you that there is no resurrection from the dead. Don't listen to those people who are teaching and preaching a different message that I gave you. This is true what I'm telling you. And the problem with bad company or those who are teaching things that are not true, it corrupts good character. And Paul brings it back to the point that it matters what you do today. Stop sinning. Isn't it often true that when we have no hope for tomorrow, it makes it easier to sin today? We say, what's the use? Might as well go out and get drunk. Might as well go out and do the thing. Paul says, no, there's a resurrection coming. There is a resurrection of the dead. You don't have to do this. In fact, Peter reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 3 about this renewal of all things. He says, everything will be destroyed in this way, as in fire and not by another flood. And he asks this question, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Remember when what we hope in, in this life, is taken away, the new hope is then in the promise of God. And Peter reminds us that in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven in a new earth. We certainly need hope for today. We need hope for tomorrow. It's the resurrection that gives us this hope. You may find yourself in a season of despair and anxiety, just like the disciples did as Jesus came triumphal in his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. They were hailing him as the king and as the savior, but by Friday they had crucified him. And so the hopes that were there on Sunday were dashed on Friday. And you may find yourself in that place. I think we all are feeling that in different ways today, that hopes and dreams that we had for the future have really been put on pause and they've really been put on hold. And we're just kind of in that time. And in this passage of Scripture, Paul is reminding us that in this time, in these moments, we place our hope in the promise of the future that was guaranteed by Jesus, the first fruits, because of his resurrection. There's no resurrection without death. The cross always comes before the crown. So we certainly need hope for today. It's a resurrection that gives us that hope. I read this this week in a newsletter, The Culture Translator. says this, This pandemic is also teaching us something even more profound if we're willing to listen. And it's the simple truth. Human suffering is both universal and transformative. In a strange way, we've all been given the gift of pain as Christians, we are not saved from pain, but rather we are saved through pain. By Christ's own wounds, we are healed. And because we serve a suffering God, we can see God in our own suffering and in the suffering of others. 
In The Crucified God, theologian Jorgen Moltmann explains, When we feel pain, we participate in his pain, and when we grieve, we share his grief. In fact, the central motive of suffering, of dying and rising again, runs throughout the entire biblical narrative. One example from John's Gospel reads, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. If we are to be born again, we must first die. Paul reminds us, pain is a poignant teacher forever reminding us that before we rise up, we most assuredly go down. In this time of suffering, we not only join in solidarity with all human suffering, but in God's own suffering in and for the world. We're all in this together. Everyone is hurting. Instead of escaping your pain, how can you use it as a tool toward transformation? How can you model this pain of dying and rising for those around us? What needs to die in our life? Perhaps it's our identity, our possessions, our job title, our salary for us truly to be born again. G.K. Chesterton said, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless. Lord is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. The writer of Ecclesiastes said, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. But he didn't know what we know. He didn't know about the resurrection of Jesus. And he didn't know that because of the resurrection of Jesus, we also will be raised. And so in a turn of events, the resurrection of Jesus says, meaningful, meaningful. With the resurrection, everything is meaningful. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? In your season of darkness and despair, and it feels like we're going down, that's the story of the scripture. There's a going down, but there's also a rising up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's words. We desperately need them today. We need hope. Hope for eternal life. Hope even as we face death. We need hope for tomorrow. God, we thank you for the promise of resurrection. And so, Father, when our hopes in this life are taken away, may we find a new hope, a new hope in the promise that when Jesus returns, we will be raised with him. Father, for our despair and for our anxiety, Father, for the things we struggle with today, we know that this enemy of death is here and will one day totally be destroyed. And so, Father, we place our trust and our faith in Jesus for the hope 
that he can give us. God, if it was only for this life we have hope, we are to be pitied. But don't pity us, world, because we have the hope of eternal life. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.